Hello, hello, and welcome to the Finding the Unicorn in You podcast. What a beautiful day to inspire lives. My name is Jaime Gabriel Ragosa, your host, and I am so excited to have you here. Let's get ready to meet some fantastic unicorns and learn how to unleash the inner unicorn in you. Let's get started. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Finding the Unicorn in You. Today, I have a very exciting guest. She is a communication specialist, works with leaders across multiple industries to improve their DEI policies and help neurodivergent, such as autistic, ADHD, dyslexia, things of that nature, people into work and at work to achieve recognition, respect, and understanding. She is also a professional speaker, a TEDx speaker, TEDx curator, and speaker coach. She's autistic herself and has ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, PDA, and SPD herself. So without further ado, I have Sam Warner. Queen of labels. <laughs> Hi, how are you? I must uh, make a note to rewrite that intro. <laughs> it's okay. I think it's... I need to say it because I, I use that language all the time, but it's not easy for everyone else. <laughs> it's okay. It's good because it helps me pronounce a lot of different things that, and expose myself to things I haven't before. <laughs> That's true enough. Absolutely. Every day is a day at school. Exactly. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to get into this field of work and the amazing things that you do? Well, yes, sure. So I was in the corporate rat race, <laughs> like a lot of people are uh, encouraged from school to go and get a job and work for 30 years until you retire and die. And I was all in on that one. I was doing as I was told, like a good little work to be. And <laughs> Someone asked me about 15 years ago, why is it that I always seem to work with men? Which I thought was a really interesting question because I'd never thought about it. And I reflected back on the jobs that I'd had. Lo and behold, I'd done jobs with the police and with the Ministry of Defence and in IT. And I was thinking, mm, yes, I, I would say that's fair, that there's a very large percentage of men that I was working with certainly not by design. And what I thought was, I think it's because, and I'm generalizing massively here, most men say what they mean and mean what they say. And that straight talking, direct language, no fluff, no wool, no subterfuge, subtext, suggestion, stuff I just don't get or understand gets in the way of the messaging. So it's a lot easier to deal with straight talkers. That's what I think happened. And then we found an Aspie test, which is how old this was, an Aspie test. I don't even use that word anymore. Some people do, and they're absolutely, it's their identity. But generally speaking, we're not using those words anymore. And I scored more than all the boys. <laughs> so I'm like, hmm, maybe there's something in this. And in true Sam style, I went down a, a sort of a research rabbit hole <laughs> and and thought, oh my goodness, right, okay, so looks like I'm most definitely autistic. And it came much later that I thought that I also probably had some other good stuff along with the autism as I went deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole and kept feeling this pull to pass my knowledge on to others. So whilst I was still in corporate, I was like, I had like side hustle going on and I was teaching people the things I'd learned in personal development, 
like soft skills, not technical skills necessarily, how to be a human with other humans in an office. Because they don't teach you how to do that. They just expect you to know. And giving people tips on like how to deal with a bully at work or how to ask your boss if you can start a project or something like that when they're not very approachable. Because I'd had to do all of those things. And I was like, well, why, I shouldn't just keep that to myself. Everyone should know how to do this. And, and that's always been my ethos. My work ethic is I work hard and I share what I know. And I, I suppose it's altruistic because if, if all my bills were covered, I would just tell everyone everything I know and so they could have it all for free. But I realized that actually I shouldn't work myself to death in corporate, the square peg in the round hole. I should actually just concentrate on this training stuff because it, it makes me feel like it's my purpose. Have you ever, Jamie, have you ever sat in the bath and gazed at your toes and just thought, what am I for? Why am I here? Why don't I need to plug myself in somewhere? But those thoughts were running through my mind and I never had an answer to them. I, I was very lost for a long time. And then to have that kind of epiphany, that aha moment, that unicorn moment where I went, oh, I am special. Oh my goodness. This is why I'm here. Because I can speak neurotypical and I can speak neurodivergent. That's what it is. And that's how the autistic interpreter, which is the moniker I use, was born. As I realized I could talk to both parties. So what I do now is I work with organizations who want to do the DEI, the diversity, equity, and inclusion, want that, want them to do that better. And quite often they don't even have reasonable adjustments, accommodations, adaptations. They don't even have a neurodiversity policy. So we help them with all that stuff because they're really willing. But what they had been doing is asking individuals, oh, you just tell us what you want. That whole self-advocacy piece, which is really hard when you don't know what you're allowed to ask for. You don't want to be the diva in the room. The rest of the team's giving you the side eye going, how come you get special treatment? When actually everyone should be able to avail themselves of any reasonable adjustments. If you're an introvert, do you really want to be in an open plan office with Mr. I play for every weekend and, and all that stuff? <laughs> I'm sure we've all had one of those. And, and sometimes I work with individuals to help them have the right language to ask for what they need. But most of the time I'm working with organizations who want to get it right. And that can be right from recruitment all the way through to people who've been there a long time. They might even be managers or C-suite level. And somebody somewhere has gone, we could do with a little bit of help on this. It's a delicate subject. And it is because it's people. You can't just dive in and go, by the way, I think you're autistic. You need to go on some training. That's not going to fly. Yeah. That's how it all happened. And it's exploded into this piece where I'm not just teaching people how to do public speaking or the soft skills. It was a real pull. The universe gave me a good yank over there and said, no, actually, you're meant to do this. Go do that. Okay. And it's working really well. But it did take a little bit of time because the appetite needed to be there. 
And I think the appetite is growing. We're nearly there. <laughs> so yeah, that's how come I'm here. It's a very long answer to a short question. Sorry. No, I, I love it. And I, it's true. You don't really know what you can ask for. And it's, you don't know what you don't know. And I've seen this across multiple agencies that I've worked with. And me, myself, I've actually tried to start establishing DEI and DNI programs and subcommittees to really make these organizations think, wow, our processes are very, very strict and don't really apply to the general mass. And we need different accommodations for people. And that's one thing that I'm always advocating for as well. Just I, I have ADHD myself and my mind doesn't work the same as my boss's mind or their boss's mind or my coworkers. So you need to be able to understand how each person works, utilize them for their strengths and try to in, look at what their weaknesses are and see how you can you adapt the workforce or the or their workload to go with their strengths versus their weaknesses. So it's amazing what you're doing. <laughs> and it, it had lived in some places inside the mental health space. So when we talk about gender and LGBTQIA and uh, ethnicity, disability and mental health, there's five things. And I'm going, there's six. <laughs> you missed one off. Neurodiversity. And then people were like, yeah, but ADHD is a mental health condition. I'm like, no. So right, the DSM-5 says it is, but it's just like autism. You are born with that kind of brain. That doesn't happen because, I don't know, you drank something or you got hit on the head or something. There's no way your brain could be changed so fundamentally. And also, it bears out when you say, okay, but it can be medicated. Okay, right. Take away the medication. Does the ADHD come back? Yes, it does. So there's no cure for it. Hmm. Like there's no cure for autism. <laughs> and apart from a set of earplugs, there's not much cure for sensory processing disorder either. <laughs> mm -hmm. I completely agree. And I think it's amazing that you are speaking and advocating for people on the spectrum, for whether it be autism or having a developmental disability, because each person is different. And I think that's one thing that people forget. When they hear autism, they think of what does social media portray? The very like non-functional, super sense, hypersensitive individual that can't real that always needs to, needs that caretaking. But no, it's a spectrum. You can be on the lower end or the higher end of the spectrum and still be able to function, still be able to be to do things on your own. And getting rid of that stigma is super important and showing them that even people with autism can still be successful, can still go through several milestones in life without needing any assistance or very little to like no assistance. 100%. And people are missing out. So innovation and creativity are really the two big ways that companies can get an edge over their competitors, move forward, make loads of money, do all that kind of stuff. But they keep on asking for the same people to join their organization. So they're employing clones. And they always make the mistake of assuming that academic prowess, having a string of A stars or whatever the grades are from wherever you're from, is like, a, I don't know, a sign off to this person's got a brain. They know how to use it and they're amazing. They'll have loads of ideas. Well, actually, not necessarily. <laughs> I've met quite a few people who got a first at university and they ended up working at McDonald's because they couldn't apply anything that they knew, that they'd learned parrot fashion. 
Whereas I got a third because I hate exams. I do really poorly in the regurgitate everything in the next three hours. And by the way, you can't consult anything or talk to anyone. Name a job where you have to do that. <laughs> I can't think of one myself. So I didn't do very well in those environments. And somehow I did get my degree, which was a minor miracle. And I've lost where I was going with that. As usual, my train of thought has disappeared. I got distracted because I had five jobs at the same time <laughs> doing my <laughs> university degree. And every time I went to an interview, they were far more interested in the five jobs I did. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, the academic side wasn't really that important in the end. <laughs> no, and you don't need an, you don't need a high like a college degree to be successful. You can be successful in different ways in life. And you can learn so much more in real life experience than you will in any textbook sometimes. For sure. And, and it's the childlike wonder is what you want. If you want innovation and creativity, it's very easy for us to forget when we're old what it's like to be five, where there's no holds barred. You can put a dinosaur on the moon if you want. There's a way, right? You could build a spaceship or a ladder, or you could just like have a really big, I don't know, slingshot. There you go. He's on the moon. There's just no limits. And a lot of people I have met who are neurodivergent have not brought the walls down on, on that creativity. They've kept that creative mind. That And and some people who've lost it call it, it's really childish. I'm like, no, it's childlike. And it's childlike wonder. And that's where all the good stuff comes from. So I used to get told off for being over exuberant and excitable and all of those kind of things. And I'm like, it's not really, there is this consistent thing that you're after, this sort of neutral dead person that you want that works. I can't really do that. You're either going to get hyped up Sam or nonverbal in the corner. <laughs> Don't look at me, Sam. I don't really have a sort of gentle middle ground. So let me be excitable. Let me be super creative. Let me loads of ideas. And care if you steal them. You've been doing it for years anyway. Carry on. Just want them to happen. <laughs> My ego's not important. I'm not looking for, well done, Sam. I'm looking for, brilliant, we solved that problem. I love that. I love that. <laughs> so I want you to think in your unicorn journey and throughout the like the last couple of years, what was a point in your journey that you're like, wow, this was like a big pivot in my life or this was like very surprising that you weren't expecting? Well, that, that doing that test and realizing I've scored more than everyone else was one of them. And I think it was that toe gazing moment where I realized I need to do something with this new information. This is important. This is why I'm here. That was really the big aha moment, I think. And that I didn't resist it. Because <laughs> I'm very good at doing that. <laughs> and I, what I've done is I've tuned in more into that intuition. Like if you put like a bottle or a cup on the side of your table and it's quite close to the edge and there's a little voice inside your head that goes, you might knock that off. You, you might want to push that on the table a little bit more. And most of us just go, nah, that won't happen. That's fine. Two minutes later, it's on the floor. Of course it is, because you didn't listen to it, your intuition. 
So I've been tapping into that intuition a lot more and that's really helped me out. Even just things on desks <laughs> that don't land on the floor. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and if you could break, I know that no matter what, people are always going to have certain stereotypes about neurodivergence and then like people on the spectrum. If you could break one or two stereotypes, which one would you have it, like talk about? Mm, that's a good question. I think one of the biggest ones is that, that there are loads and loads of blokes who are neurodivergent, but there's very few women and that's not true. Women are better at masking. They're programmed to be more social from caveman times where we had to be. It takes a village and all that. Grow the kids up. Where men could be more solitary and that would be okay. And we're not very far along in our evolutionary scale. If you can compare us to crocodiles, they've been around for millions of years. We haven't. So we're still evolving. And so we're not far off that whole group mentality. It's another reason why people are terrified of public speaking, for example, because they're scared someone's going to stand up and go, oh my God, you're a lover. You want to never return. We never want to see you again. Because if that was the case scenario, you're going to freeze to death or starve to death or get eaten by something horrible. And uh, we don't want that to happen. So that whole lizard brain thing, whether it's real or not, I don't care. It's a useful way of explaining what's going on in our heads <laughs> and the way we respond to the world. So that's really handy. So there's lots of women out there undiagnosed and they are strong. And another stereotype I want to myth bust is that we all are blessed with some kind of superpower. So some people, when they concentrate on one subject for a really long time, get really good at it. A bit like when you get a musician that plays the piano and ends up being a concert pianist, because that's all they do. They play the piano constantly. Or the artist that spends thousands of hours learning their craft. That doesn't mean they're autistic. It doesn't mean they're neurodivergent. It means they practice. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I'm a generalist. One might say I'm a polymath even, where I try stuff, I do it really well, I get to a certain level, but then I get really bored and, and I have the whole ADHD shiny thing, squirrel. Oh, that's really interesting. I need to know everything about volcanoes immediately because I saw something on lava and I become a volcanologist for about three weeks and then something else comes along. But it also means I can talk to people on almost any subject. And I think part of the reason I do that is because my autistic brain hates small talk. I have to have something to talk about, a real thing. So I think that's that's how my brain works. But that stereotype of we all have to have some sort of superhuman power, I think it's damaging because it's an expectation that we come along with something that's extraordinary. And a lot of us aren't extraordinary. We're humans like everyone else. And we just might have some strengths in some areas and might need a bit of support in other areas. I think that's more realistic. I like that. And I can totally resonate with what you just said right now. I am the same way. I uh, I my ADHD makes me 
get distracted by every single thing and I'll start hyper-focusing on one topic and then I'll start learning everything about it and then start learning everything about this and then that. And I'm the same way. I don't like awkward silences. So the more I know about a topic, then I don't like to feel excluded either. So if I know I'm going to an event, I'll start hyper-fixating on everything about that event. Learn as much as I can. That way I have things to talk about when I'm there. <laughs> so I have these loads of trivia that people are like, how do you know this? And I was like, I don't know, just <laughs> my hyper-fixations from different things. Absolutely. Ages ago, 20 years ago, when I was a personal assistant, that was one of my first kind of jobs that I did. When my boss would meet clients or new people, it made sense to me that he knew a bit about them. So he was in a strong position. So I would go and research them. This We didn't really have much in the way of the old internet then. Well, it was there, but it wasn't great, I have to say. But we had this thing called the phone. <laughs> and I used to have a phone number for the, the, the people who were coming. That's how I arranged the appointment. So I used to ring up and talk to the receptionist and get the skinny on. What's that business like to work for? Have you got really high attrition or not? What All those kind of back backstory information. Not to get one over on the client, but just so that my boss looked like he was really invested in that meeting. And he was. He wanted to know that stuff so that he wasn't going, so tell me about your company as a sort of novice meeting. And I think the person that came really appreciated the fact that we'd made the effort to find out things, that we're really interested in them. So I think it did work quite well. No one got upset about it. <laughs> it wasn't like I was stalking them. <laughs> it's good to do your research no matter what situation you're in. I think it's better to be well prepared than going in there blindly. Oh, 100%. My, my dad always told me, if you've got an interview or an important meeting, if you can, go there the day before and suss out the parking, how to get in, say hi to the receptionist. Hi, I'm coming in for an interview tomorrow. Are you going to be here tomorrow? Oh, great. I'll see a friendly face. That's really smashing. Fantastic. Is it okay to park here? Just immediately building rapport with that person. And just, it puts you at ease as well when you're building that rapport with that friendly face. So tomorrow you're going, Oh, hello. Do you remember me? I know I look a bit different today. Got my suit on today for my interview. And you just get a little bit of banter. You never know what else that receptionist does, how long they've been there, what connections they've got in the business. And uh, I'm a big fan of treating everybody very well because you don't know who they really are. <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. I've done that once and I got the position because that receptionist was like, a key player and had been there for 20 years and just being friendly with the reception. And I guess that was part of the interview. They would say, how well did the person interact with the reception, the receptionist? And I didn't even know that. They told me afterwards that, you know, the receptionist really vouched for you. We weren't sure about you, but the receptionist said, yes, we need to get it. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you just never knew. Brilliant. Brilliant. Not just me having <laughs> that kind of experience. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Be prepared. <laughs> exactly. And if you can go back in time with all the knowledge that you have now, and you can give yourself a piece of advice that would drastically change your path and your journey, what would it be? It would probably be to not worry so much about what other people say or think or whatever about me, because I'm going to leave them behind, especially at school. 
and in the early days, they don't really matter. You can build that rapport at the time if you can, but if they are mean to you or, or, or it's an uncomfortable situation, just withdrawing and not interacting is actually okay. It's a good defense mechanism. Instead of getting upset about things and ruminating on them and having it as like a traumatic experience. So I think if I took fewer things to heart, I would have had a better time. So don't bother so much about what other people think of you. Allow it to bounce off you, Sam. Because I cared very deeply about what everybody said at any time because I took it personally and literally. So that that's probably the the advice. I love that. I, it reminds me of, of a saying that a drag queen once said, actually. It was, you have to let words be like water off the duck's back. Just let it slide down. Don't even let it stick to you. Yeah. yeah. And if I'm around who I already know is like a toxic person, because sometimes you can't avoid them. Sometimes you have to work with them. I can, <laughs> it's a bit woo. But I do imagine that I'm putting like this invisible cloak around that's like the bouncy, things are going to bounce off it cloak. It protects me and all the bad stuff just doesn't get through. So it, that's the kind of thing I wish my younger self had. But, but that was a trick that someone gave me quite some time ago. But it works. It's that whole, if you imagine it, then you it becomes real and it really helps you cope. So yeah, if anyone out there who needs that little trick, you can steal it. <laughs> and that cloak can be any color you want. Like, <laughs> Yeah, very true. <laughs> and if you think back, since you've mentioned challenges, what was, has been the most challenging transition or obstacle that you have faced thus far? And how did you tackle it? Biggest obstacle would probably be my family. My parents are neurodivergent, but they're in their 80s. So they're not going to get a diagnosis anytime soon. They are who they are. My brothers are very resistant to the, uh, the idea. I have two brothers. And for a long time, they wouldn't accept what I was talking about. When I said, I, I think I'm autistic. I think this is why the, everything's been so hard for me. And they're like, what's been hard for you? You're the youngest. You always, you got this and that and the other. You're the only girl. You got this. I'm like, hold on a minute very warped sense of what was good for me but that's just siblings but they were really resistant to acknowledge that I might actually have what I might consider a legitimate reason for finding the world a difficult place to navigate and why I might not have been easy to live with I wasn't just being annoying on purpose I wasn't just ignoring them on purpose I wasn't cataloguing everything to annoy them I was compelled to do it I remember a whole su summer I spent, we used to have six weeks summer holiday like for school between the years. And I, I didn't go and play with friends. I was sat in my room with a typewriter that my dad got me, typewriter. And I sat and I catalogued all of my records and all of my cassette tapes. Yes, I'm that old. And once I'd done it by artist, I decided obviously I needed to do it again by song title. <laughs> so I did struggle quite a lot with this sort of I don't know what how to call it the naysaying maybe that's the way of, of they were like no you're wrong it's not that you're just weird or whatever and when I got my diagnosis last year so I was 49 last year finally saved up private diagnosis because I couldn't get one 
through our NHS over here in the UK. And I, unfortunately, I just didn't present autistic enough to the GPs. They were like, well, you've got eye contact and you held down a job and you bought a house and you're married. You can't possibly be autistic. And I'm like, you need retraining. <laughs> so I ended up paying for it. But the validation, I cried for a whole hour when I got my results. The validation, you are autistic and you have ADHD. You are not crazy or weird. It's the way you're wired from birth. That's it. And suddenly I was like, wow, brilliant. I feel like a new woman. I feel, it's, I felt like I had, I don't know, new blood or something. It's so hard to describe how it felt. That, that whiff of imposter that I might have felt had gone completely. And that, that was really amazing. But I had to do that to come back to my family and go, look, and show them the piece of paper and go, see? Because they just thought I was weird. So sometimes you have to go and do something else to get things sorted out is, is what I learned. You can't always convince people yourself. Yeah, I completely agree. I had the same type of validation when I got diagnosed. And it's you feel like a weight off your shoulders. You're like, I'm not irregular. Like, I'm not like this weird person that just can't get this right. Like, I'm not lazy. I'm not a failure. It's just my weight my brain works a little bit different. So I just need to get the tools to be able to accommodate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, now I can't get any medication, even if I wanted it because of the way our system works. But mm -hmm. hey, that doesn't matter. I've had 50 years on this planet without medication. <laughs> Why should I start now? <laughs> mm -hmm. True. And if someone is going undergoing a similar situation, let's say that they're thinking that they might have a diagnosis, but they haven't been able to go get tested or anything like that. What would it be something that you would help them to offer them to get through the process? Well, quite often I just have a chat with them because it's hard for some people to find others that are like them, that are willing to chat openly. And just like we've done on this podcast there's been moments i've said something you've gone oh yes that's like me and those moments are really precious so that we don't feel so isolated and lonely it can feel really lonely when you, you don't have someone who's like you around and, and more than just going into a facebook forum or something like that which has its usefulness from time to time there's nothing quite like having a chat with someone so i tend to have a one-to-one -one chat with people and we talk through what's going on for you. Tell me, what are your thoughts? What's happening for you? And then I'll share some of my experiences and we'll have a conversation to and a, a throw. It's not just a coaching session. It's just a chat at that point. And usually by the end of it, if they've asked the questions, there's a very good chance they're neurodivergent. It's very rare they're not. Um, and it also doesn't help that the current diagnostic tools seem to have decided some arbitrary number of if you have this many traits to this extent, then you're autistic. Whereas if you're like two points below it and you're like, well, I've still got most of them. I'm just not quite autistic enough for you, but still everything's really hard. So yeah, that's not helpful in the slightest. And also I tell people you don't always need to have a formal diagnosis to get what you need. 
Certainly in the UK, you don't need a formal diagnosis to access reasonable adjustments and be considered a protected characteristic under HR law. I don't know what it's like in other countries. I know that the USA also has protections for lots of different, I'm going to call them disabilities because it falls under that umbrella. Whether someone finds it disabling or not is a personal thing. Sometimes it's down to the employer in particular. So some employers will say, no, I want to see your diagnosis before I acknowledge that and go forward with it. In which case you probably don't want to work for them anyway, <laughs> if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. You're lying. And there's no advantage to it. If I came up to an employer and went, oh, I do have to tell you that I'm autistic. And that means actually I've got some strengths here, because I'd always give them the strengths first. Well, and I'd say, I've got a couple of support needs over here. X, Y, and Z. Is that okay with you? But because you've painted up your strengths, they're like, yes, of course. Yes, we can help you with that other stuff. We want all this good stuff. Like the idea is creation, problem solving, and recognition, the good stuff. And, and so normally they're, they're, they're quite good at accepting those accommodations as part of the package, but there is no actual advantage. So if other people in the team are like, oh, you've got reasonable adjustments, you've got an edge on us. And I'm like, let me put this very clearly for you, right? I wear glasses, right? I've got a really high prescription. Now, if I take my glasses off, I'm just like you if you don't wear glasses. However, I can't see, so I'm now at a disadvantage. If we say that my glasses are a reasonable adjustment to allow me to see, just like you can, have I got an unfair advantage? That's what reasonable adjustments are. They're bringing us up to where you already are. And I wish more organizations would clearly communicate that across all of their staff. Exactly. And I I agree with you 1000%. And I think people want their, that word favoritism always goes out where they're like, oh, you're favoring that person over me. You're giving them special attention over you. And it's not that, is that each person needs different levels of assistance. And it, uh, you should not get that envy or that jealousy that we're not giving you those special attention. It's because you don't need those accommodations to be at your level that you're at now. 100%. Yep. Totally. Yeah. When things are communicated widely, that's when you don't get problems. And I know a lot of organizations don't do communication very well. So that's why I call myself a neurodivergent communication specialist, because I'm upfront about my neurodivergency. I want them to know that I have lived experience. I'm not just an ally. Allies are great, but I have lived experience and examples, personal examples. But also, the communication part is so important, because that's the bit that causes a lot of problems. Often I'll go into an organization because they're having trouble with conflict or handling difficult conversations, giving and receiving feedback. Standard stuff, right? No matter what your brain's like, but quite often because they have no concept that two-fifths of their organization are going to be neurodivergent in some way, most of which undiagnosed. They have no concept that the communication part's the broken part. And if they fixed that, actually, it would be a lot smoother ride fewer grievances, less attrition, lower recruitment. Recruitment's really expensive. 
why would you want to have to recruit 20 more people this year? Would you want to hang on to the ones you recruited last year? <laughs> it's going to save you thousands. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So yeah, that's where I, I forgot what question you asked now. <laughs> it's okay. I think we've answered it amongst there. I think we actually got a little bit off topic. <laughs> but it does lead me to my last question. It's already been an hour. I barely even noticed. I, I, I really am enjoying talking to you. This has been such a very interesting and it hits really, it hits home for me. So thank you so much for being vulnerable and even being on here and talking about these topics. So for the last question, in your opinion, what key factor transforms an ordinary person into a unicorn? Speak your truth. So I think the unicorn people are the people who are brave enough, courageous enough to speak their truth. That's whether it's speaking up at work, whether it's saying at school, I'm sorry, miss, or sir, I, could you just say that again? Because I didn't get it. Speak your truth. Don't hide. Don't try and be like everyone else. Speak up. Because pretty much everyone else in the room is going, thank goodness you asked that question because I didn't know it either. Because they don't have the bravery to put their hand up. So be that person. If you don't understand it, put your hand up. I don't understand it. Can you say it again? Or go back two steps and say it again. Whatever it takes. Because you're not alone. And you have the power (laughs) to speak your truth. So that's what, for me, makes someone a unicorn, someone who speaks their truth. I have to agree 100%. I don't even know how many times I've spoken up and, and they used to call me the question master in high school and in college because I would nonstop ask questions. But you wouldn't understand how many people would come up to me after the lecture, after the class and say, thank you. I was not understanding that at all. And thank you for repeating and really grilling the professor down until he actually explained it in a way that we understood. And I was like, I wasn't even doing it for you. I was doing it selfishly for me. <laughs> but, but thank you so much. Um, this has been such a pleasure. I can talk for hours with you. It's been such an amazing time. But for those who want to stay updated with your work and maybe listening to your TED Talks or just get connected with you and work with you, how can they connect with you? Well, I am on LinkedIn. Sam Warner, the autistic interpreter in brackets, because there's lots of guys called Sam Warner. <laughs> it's fun with having that kind of name. But actually, if you just hop on over to my website, then pretty much everything's linked from there anyway. So it's getyourmessageacross.com, but you have to put hyphens in between. So it's get hyphen, your hyphen, message hyphen across.com <laughs> and that's because it's really hard to read four words jammed together mm-hmm. as one especially if you've got a screen reader so for people who are visually impaired that would have been one long horrible word yeah so at least it can read it out properly perfect and i'll put it in the show notes so that people can just link on it link into it and they don't have to type it out so it'll be in the show notes if you're interested <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much. Of course. Well, that pretty much concludes our time. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. And I really do appreciate your presence and all of the tidbits that you gave out today. Awesome. Thanks for having me, James. It's great. Of course. And for listeners, if you like this content, feel free to leave us a five-star review. Hit that subscribe button and episodes come out every Friday at 7 a.m. Thank you so much and see you next week.